Section 8 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. Excursion to Brussa. The two brothers, Baron Charles and Frederick von Busek, and Herr Sattler, the talented artist, resolved to make an excursion to Brissa, and, as I had expressed a similar wish, they were obliging enough to invite me to make a fourth in their party. But when it came to the point, I had almost become irresolute. I was asked by some one if I was a good writer, for if you are not, said my questioner, it would be far better for you not to accompany them, as Brissa is four German miles distant from Gemlek and the road is bad, so that the gentlemen must ride briskly if they wished to reach the town before sundown, starting as they would at half-past two in the afternoon, the general hour of landing at Gemlek. In the event of your being unable to keep up with the rest, you would put them to great inconvenience, or they will be compelled to leave you behind on the road. I had never mounted a horse, and felt almost inclined to confess the fact, but my curiosity to see Brissa, the beautiful town at the foot of Olympus, gained the day, and I boldly declared that I had no doubt I should be able to keep pace with my companions. On the 13th of May we left Constantinople at half-past six in the morning, on board a little steamer of forty horsepower. Passing the Princes and Dog Islands, we swept across the Sea of Marmora towards the snow-crowned Olympus, until, after a voyage of seven hours, we reached Gemlek. Gemlek, distant thirty sea-miles from Constantinople, is a miserable place, but nevertheless does some trade as the harbour of Bithynia. The agent of the Danube Navigation Company was a civil enough to procure us good horses, and a genuine stalwart and fierce-looking Turkoman for a guide. This man wore in his girdle several pistols and a dagger, a long crooked scimitar hung at his side, and instead of shoes and slippers, large boots decked his feet, bordered at the top by a wide strip of white cloth, on which there were depicted blue flowers and other ornaments. His head was graced by a handsome turban. At half-past two o'clock the horses arrived. I swung myself boldly upon my rocinante, called on my good angel to defend me, and away we started, slowly at first over stock and stone. My joy was boundless when I found that I could sit steadily upon my horse, but shortly afterwards, when we broke into a trot, I began to feel particularly uncomfortable, as I could not get on at all with the stirrup, which was continually slipping to my heel, while sometimes my foot slid out of it altogether, and I ran the risk of losing my balance. Oh, what would I not have given to have asked advice of any one! but unfortunately I could not do so without at once betraying my ignorance of horsemanship. I therefore took care to bring up the rear, under the pretense that my horse was shy, and would not go well unless it saw the others before it. My real reason was that I wished to hide my manoeuvres from the gentleman, for every moment I expected to fall. Frequently I clutched at the saddle with both hands as I swayed from side to side, I looked forward in terror to the gallop, but to my surprise found that I could manage this pace better than the trot. My courage bought its reward, for I reached the goal of our journey thoroughly shaken but without mishap. 
During the time that we traveled at a foot pace, I had found leisure to contemplate the scenery around us. For half the entire distance we ride from one valley into another, as often as a hill is reached there is a limited prospect before the traveler, who has, however, only to turn his head, and he enjoys a beautiful view over the Sea of Marmora. After a ride of two and a half hours we arrived at a little khan, where we rested for half an hour. Proceeding thence a short distance, we reached the last of the hills, and the great valley, at the end of which Brusa is seen leaning against Olympus, lay stretched before our eager eyes, while behind us we could still distinguish, far beyond hill and dale, the distant sea skirting the horizon. Yet beautiful as this landscape undoubtedly is, I had seen it surpassed in Switzerland. The immense valley which lies spread out before Brissa is uncultivated, deserted, and unwatered. No carpet of luxuriant verdure, no rushing river, no pretty village gives an air of life to this magnificent and yet monotonous region, and no giant mountains covered with eternal snow look down upon the plain beneath. Pictures like these I had frequently found in Switzerland, in the Tyrol, and also near Salzburg. Here I saw indeed separate beauties, but no harmonious whole. Olympus is a fine, majestic mountain, forming an extended barrier, but its height can scarcely exceed six thousand feet, and during the present month it is totally despoiled of its surface of glittering snow. Brissa, with its innumerable minarets, is the only point of relief to which the eye continually recurs, because there is nothing beyond to attract it. A little brook crossed by a very high stone bridge, but so shallow already in the middle of May as hardly to cover our horses' hooves, and towards Brissa, a miserable village, with a few plantations of olives and mulberry trees, are the only objects to be discovered throughout the whole wide expanse. Wherever I found the olive tree, here, near Trieste, and in Sicily, it was alike ugly. The stem is gnarled, and the leaves are narrow and of a dingy green color. The mulberry tree, with its luxuriant bright green foliage, forms an agreeable contrast to the olive. The silk produced in this neighborhood is peculiarly fine in quality, and the stuffs from Brusa are renowned far and wide. We reached the town in safety before sunset. It is one of the most disagreeable circumstances that can happen to the traveller to arrive at an oriental town after evening has closed in. He finds the gates locked, and may clamour for admittance in vain. In order to gain our inn, we were obliged to ride through the greater part of the town. I had here an opportunity of observing that it is just as unsightly as the interior of Constantinople. The streets are narrow, and the houses built of wood, plaster, and some even of stone, but all wear an aspect of poverty, and at the same time of singularity, the gables projecting so much that they occupy half the width of the street, and render it completely dark, while they increase its narrowness. The inn, too, at which we put up, looked far from inviting when viewed from the outside, so that we had some dark misgivings respecting the quality of the accommodation that awaited us. But in proportion as the outside had looked unpropitious, were we agreeably surprised on entering. A neat and roomy courtyard, with a basin of pure sparkling water in the midst, surrounded by mulberry trees, was the first thing we beheld. 
Round this courtyard were two stories of clean but simply furnished rooms. The fare was good, and we were even regaled with a bottle of excellent wine from the lower regions of Olympus. May 14th. Next morning we visited the town and its environs, under the guidance and protection of a cavas. The town itself is of great extent, and is reported to contain above ten thousand houses, inhabited exclusively by Turks. The population of the suburbs, which comprise nearly four thousand houses, is a mixed one of Christians, Jews, Greeks, etc. The town numbers three hundred and sixty mosques, but the greater portion of them are so insignificant and in such a dilapidated condition that we scarcely observed them. Strangers are here permitted to enter the mosques in a company of a kavas. We visited some of the principal, among which the Ula Darkami may decidedly be reckoned. The cupola of this mosque is a considered a masterpiece, and rests upon graceful columns. It is open at the top, thus diffusing a chastened light and a clear atmosphere throughout the building. Immediately beneath this cupola stands a large marble basin, in which small fishes swim merrily about. The mosque of Sultan Mohammed I and of Sultan Idiram Bojasid must also be noticed on account of their splendid architecture, the latter, too, for the fine view which is thence obtained. In the mosque of Murad I visitors are still shown weapons and garments which once belonged to that sultan. I saw none of the magnificent regal buildings mentioned by some writers. The imperial kiosk is so simple in its appearance that if we had not climbed the hill on which it stands for the sake of the view, it would not have been worth the trouble of the walk. A stone bridge, roofed in through its entire length, crosses the bed of the river, which has very steep banks, but contains very little water. A double row of small cottages, in which silk weavers live and ply their trade, lines this bridge, which I was surprised to see here, as its architecture seemed rather to appertain to my own country than to the east. During my whole journey I did not see a second bridge of this kind, either in Syria or Egypt. The streets are all very dull and deserted, a fact which is rather remarkable in a town of one hundred thousand inhabitants. In most of the streets more dogs than men are to be seen, not only in Constantinople, but in almost every oriental town, vast numbers of these creatures run about in a wild state. Here, as everywhere, some degree of bustle is to be found in the bazaars, particularly in those which are covered in. Beautiful and durable silk stuffs, the most valuable of which are kept in warehouses under lock and key, form the chief article of traffic. In the public bazaar we found nothing exposed for sale except provisions. Among these I remarked some small, very unpalatable cherries. Asia Minor is the fatherland of this fruit, but I did not find it in any degree of perfection, either here or at Smyrna. Brissa is particularly rich in cold springs, clear as crystal, which burst forth from Mount Olympus. The town is intersected in all directions by subterranean canals. In many streets the ripple of the waters below can be distinctly heard, and every house is provided with wells and stone basins of the limpid element. In some of the bazaars we find a similar arrangement. 
On a nearer approach, the appearance of Mount Olympus is not nearly so grand as when viewed from a distance. The mountain is surrounded by several small hills, which detract from the general effect. The baths, distant about a mile from the town, are prettily and healthfully situated, and moreover abundantly supplied with mineral water. Many strangers resort thither to recruit their weakened frames. The finest among these baths is called Jenny Kaplich. A lofty, circular hall contains a great swimming bath of marble, above which rises a splendid cupola. A number of refracting glasses, six hundred, they told me, diffuse a magic light around. Our journey back to Constantinople was not accomplished entirely without mishap. One of the gentlemen fell from his horse and broke his watch. The saddles and bridles of hired horses are here generally in such bad condition that there is every moment something to buckle or cobble up. We were riding at a pretty round pace when suddenly the girths burst and the saddle and rider tumbled off together. I arrived without accident at my destination, although I had frequently been in danger of falling from my horse without its being necessary that the girths should break. The gentlemen were satisfied with my performance, for I had never lagged behind, nor had they once been detained on my account. It was not until we were safely on board the ship that I told them how venturesome I had been, and what terror I had undergone. End of section 8